invite you to take your scriptures and turn to Mark 1 in your Red Pew Bible. We have a great evening service tonight. I hope you'll be back at 6 o'clock. And uh, it's a unique service. It concentrates and centers on prayer, as you can imagine, this being prayer week. This is our week as a church that we've dedicated probably for 20 years to the Lord, the first full week of January, to ask the Lord to be with us and dedicate our lives and our ministries to Him. That's why we have prayer week. There's plenty of opportunities to uh, be in a small group prayer meeting, even if you're not in a small group, those houses are open to you. I think one of them already is full completely, but the rest of them are open. There's ample opportunities for you to uh, pray all throughout the week. If you can make one, that's great. If you can make more than that, that's fantastic. Uh, But we just want to set our hearts and minds to seek the Lord because without Him we can do nothing. And so uh, please join us in prayer this week. And this morning, of course, we're going to cap it off, or I should say uh, start with um, and looking to the Lord's example of our prayer Mark's gospel is a great place to go uh, because the ministry of Jesus and Mark's presentation of it begins and ends in prayer. In Mark 1.35, Jesus prayed all night by himself before he chose the disciples. And then at the end of his life, his whole ministry is hemmed in prayer because he prays in the garden. He prays on the cross. And uh, we shouldn't be surprised by that. I mean, Jesus was a man of prayer. And uh, as I look at scriptures, and I think you would agree, that it's not surprising that Jesus prays, um, but how he prayed is surprising, at least to those in his day. Um, Jesus prayed, and I want this to be what I go after today for you and me, is that he prayed relationally. And the phrase that caught my eye as I studied this text is, Jesus prayed, Abba, Father, Now that seems normal for us because we've heard it and we pray often and start our prayers with Father. And Jesus taught us to pray our Father, so we know those things. But in his day, it was quite revolutionary. In fact, it was virtually unheard of in Jesus' time for people in their prayers to call God their Father. When Jewish people would normally pray, they would use things like Yahweh as God's name. They would say Adonai, my Lord, my God many things to address him. Father was not one of them. Um, Jesus um, referred to God as his father almost exclusively in all of his recorded prayers. Um, Commentators debate, but many believe that when Jesus, who used the word father 60 times throughout all four Gospels, many of them in prayer, that he would have said Abba. They did not speak Hebrew as the common language in Jesus' day, although the Old Testament was written in it and many of them knew it, they spoke Aramaic. Abba, which means father, is an Aramaic term. So it's possible that when Jesus says that, in his many prayers and otherwise, that that is the word that he's referring to. Uh, The Aramaic word for father is Abba. And as you can imagine, and probably could have guessed already, it is a relational term. And can I say it's an intimate relational term because it pictures the father-child relationship. Uh, Before Christ's time, in an Aramaic-speaking family, children would grow up to call their parents Abba, if it's your dad, and Ima, 
I-M-M-A, if it's your mother. Those were ter- terms that you used to call your parents by sort of sort of their name. We would say mom and dad today. It's literally some of the first words that little children would ever speak. One of the words they formed first out of their mouth would be Abba. And interestingly enough, in Jesus' day, not only did little children call their dad or father Abba, but grown children would do that. You kind of never really grew out of calling your father Abba. In fact, I think that's true today. Even as we get older and our kids become adults, they come home and my kids don't come home and say, Hey, Lance, how's it going? No, they, they still call me dad if they want to keep coming to my home anyways. But yet to address God as Abba would have been probably considered or deemed disrespectful to most Jews. Now, they would have been right to call Jesus a blasphemer, except they didn't know the fact of the kind of relationship that he had with God, his Father. Let me give you a verse. Just let me read it to you. John 5.18 says, This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, But he was even calling God his own father, making him equal with God. See, they understood the meaning of it. When you told God, you're my father, you're making quite a statement. I mean, it's it's pregnant with theology. I mean, it really is laden with the fact that Jesus had a special, unique relationship with his father. No one else had that kind of relationship with him. So it is appropriate, in fact, most appropriate, that Jesus in his prayers would address God as his father because, in fact, Jesus was his son. Obviously not genetically, but uh, as far as deity goes, father and son go together. Now, three times in the Bible, and I alluded to this a couple weeks ago in our Christmas message, the little phrase, Abba, Father, is used. And can I just build a little theological platform to make the application today before we get to our Mark 14 text. Three times, you know the first one is used of Jesus. Jesus calls his father Abba, but that's not where it stops. Can you take your Bibles and turn to Galatians chapter 4? And on your way there, because you have to pass it, would you hold your finger in Romans 8? Because these are the three passages that Abba, Father, are mentioned. Galatians chapter 4. says this reality in verses 4 through 6. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law. That's Christmas. But Christmas is linked to Easter because there was a purpose behind all of this. Here it is. To redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive the adoption of, as sons. And so on Christmas, I said, it took the the definite article, Son of God, capital S, to make you and I a Son of God, small case S. See, God sent his Son so that you could be adopted as God's Son. To redeem those who are in the law so we might receive adoption as sons. And listen, and because you are sons, what does that mean? Well, here's the expression of it. Here's one of the assurances of it, the proof of it, that the Spirit... Listen, of his son. Notice this. It's not, the spirit of God is also the spirit of his son. So the bonding and the unity of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit does. See, it's not just the spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. He's the spirit of his son. 
And so if the spirit of his son comes into your heart, you are united with God and with Jesus. And what Jesus cries out as God's son, capital S, you now can cry out as well. But it first starts out with this. It says that he has sent his spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, there it is, Abba, Father. So Jesus calls his father Abba. When you become a believer and adopted into God's family as a son of God, the spirit of God comes into your heart and he cries Abba in your hearts. So the ability to call God your father, specifically in prayer, starts on the inside. Abba, Father, is a relationship you have spiritually on the inside. But Romans goes a little further and includes us even more. If you'll turn to text Romans chapter 8 and verse 14. It says, for all who are led by the Spirit of God, Galatians have told us that, are sons of God. So if you're a son of God, little s, what does it mean for you? For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. And what happened to you when you became a son of God? But you received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba. So Jesus cries, Abba. He died on the cross to make it possible to give you the means so the Holy Spirit could come in your heart and cry, Abba. And if that reality is true, here's what happens. You cry, Abba. See how it works together? And that's what's taking place here. Abba was not allowed, it was a term that was not allowed for slaves to call their master. If you were a slave and your master in the household, you could not say Abba to him. He was only your master. But if you were a son or you were a daughter, you could say Abba. And here's what he says. When you became a Christian, when God made you his son, little s, see, you don't have to fear anymore. You're not a slave in the household. Your status has changed. You know what your status is? You are a son of God. Not like Jesus uniquely as deity, but he has made you a son of God. And therefore, here's what you can do. You now cry Abba because his spirit is in you. That's what Jesus says the connection is. So take that back. Can I tell you this? And put it in our text. Would you turn back to Mark 14? So Jesus, hear me out is not only the means to call God Abba, for us, he's the model. So you and I have the same access to God the Father. We have the same status in the sense that we are the Son of God. We've been accepted. We've been adopted. Jesus was eternally the Son of God. We were adopted adopted into his family. And so when we see Jesus pray and call his father Abba, here's what he says, because my spirit lives in you, you can do the same. Do you understand what that means? Well, Jesus is going to show us what it means, that we have access to God's throne room as our father. There's a beautiful picture. It's kind of funny, actually. I wasn't allowed to put it on the screen because it was illegal because it's, it's archived and it's been purchased. And, it's, and you may have seen it somewhere on the internet. It's a picture of John F. Kennedy in the Oval Office back in the 60s. And he's having a meeting in there. You see the Oval Office. And then he has the, you know, the desk that's been passed down, the Resolute Desk for 140, 50 or more years. And all these main officials and people are in his office and they're debating some world problem and they're all standing in a circle and then under the resolute desk, you know, has a little opening in the middle, JFK Jr.'s in there. He's only a small little boy and he's playing around 
and everybody else is over here. And I thought, isn't it amazing that here's a little child that has access to the Oval Office just like these guys who have all this power. Can I tell you, in a very small way, that's like you and me. See, we can, if I can say it reverently, we have access to the Oval Office of Heaven. And God says, listen, I know a lot of great people come in here and pray to me, but you have, because you're my child, you have access to God and all of his power and all of his might. So what does that mean? So when we look at Jesus, he's not only the means to Abba Father, he's the model. So when we look at him pray, here's what he wants us to know. You can pray like I pray. You have access, like I have access. In fact, I would go so far to say is that Jesus wants you to do that because when he, in this passage, it says, he tells them, and I'm going to tell you in a minute, about how dark and difficult it was to struggle to do all that he was asked by the Father to do. It says he goes a little way further in praise. So he leaves Peter, James, and John, and it says a little further, and the word in the Greek is micro. So he goes just a micro, small distance away from them. Here's why. Because he wants them to watch him pray. He wants them to listen to him pray. He's not going way off by himself so they can't hear or see. No, just enough distance that he has a little privacy. But he wants his disciples to watch him pray. To see how he faces Calvary. One commentator said that Gethsemane looms large with the shadow of the cross. And in Jesus's, can I say it from a human perspective, his darkest hour, his most difficult time in his life up until this point, he's going to pray. And he wants you to see it. He, wa- he wants you to hear him. He wants you to know what he goes through. Because if you know him and you have union with him as a son of God, here's what he wants you. He wants you to follow in his steps. The place he's praying in verse 32, if you read it in the text, it's Gethsemane. I've been there. It's beautiful even to this day. Large olive trees. The Bible says there was a press there. The olive press was where you crushed the olives and made all the things from it. It is a little east of the Kidron Valley and the Kidron Brook that runs through it. It is at the foot of the Mount of Olives. And it was a place that Jesus often went to with his disciples. So this isn't the first time he's ever prayed there. In fact, almost every time it seems that he was in Jerusalem, he spent time praying here. Judas knew that, and that's why Judas knew where to find him to lead the Roman soldiers there. It's a place where olives were crushed. And perhaps today, not because yours is equal by any stretch, but you're in a Gethsemane of your own. Perhaps you're here today and you feel, Pastor Walker, listen, I'm feeling pretty crushed. Crushed by the darkness that seems to pervade all around me. Crushed by difficulties you've experienced in relationships and are still experiencing. Crushed by the weight of something that, to be honest, and open, you're not really sure you can handle it, especially if you have to handle it by yourself. Crushed by what you know is going to happen if you continue to obey God, if you continue to do his will, you know where this road is heading and some of the consequences that are on it, and it's frightening. You see, I made those applications up because that's exactly what's happening to Jesus. 
See, he knows that he will be betrayed by Judas, he will be denied by Peter, and he will be forsaken by all the other ones, even the ones that are praying with him at this point. Jesus knows the weight of what he is going to bear. He asked the Father, take this cup from me. He is going to endure the wrath of God for sinners. And just the contemplation of that cup and drinking it all is frightening. Jesus knows, and he's going to know, what it's like to be crushed by continually going down the road of obedience. Jesus knows if he keeps doing the Father's will, he knows that it's ending at the cross. And it was a lot to bear, especially if he was going to bear it alone. Can I tell you this morning, Jesus fully understands. Fully understands. All the scenarios that you're going through. All of them. Because he's gone through them himself. Verse 33 says, here's how he faced them. He was greatly distressed and troubled. Do you know in the New Testament those words are very rare, very uncommon. It's a shuddering horror, literally, that has filled Jesus with deep anguish. I mean, he says in the very next verse, 34, my soul is very sorrowful. How? Even to the point of death. Literally, this grief and this weight and the burden of it and all that went with it emotionally, spiritually, and every facet is literally killing him. Have you ever been there? Do you ever think, I can't, you can't add one more thing to my life. You cannot put another obstacle in my way, another burden on my back. I cannot go another step. See, being the Son of God, capital S, or even less, being a Son of God, little s, does not mean, please hear me, does not mean that you will not face deep, dark, difficult, and even dangerous situations. It does not mean that. To be adopted into God's family, to be a person of prayer, to be obedient to the Father's will does not mean that you are exempt from, excluded from difficulties of all kinds, even things that you do not deserve. But what it does mean is that you will never have to face them alone. Why? Because God is your Abba. Because he's your Father. And can I tell you, what does that mean? Remarkably, in my estimation, remarkably, Jesus freely confesses his own struggles to his disciples. He does not keep them to himself. He does not try to pretend as if the difficulties and weight and horror of the cross are not real or they are less than they really are. He tells them in no uncertain terms how distressing they are and how it troubles him and how, in fact, it's killing him. He tells them all of that. Now, let me tell you, as a disciple, if that was me, I have seen Jesus in his power. Peter, James, and John that were with Jesus, they saw him raise people from the dead. They saw Jesus with his own words cast demons out of people. Peter, James, and John in chapter Mark 9, they were on the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus' glory was unveiled. And they saw him for who, see, they've seen him and the power he has. And for Jesus to say that he is so troubled, so in horror by what's happening to him must have stunned them greatly. I mean, in their mind, Jesus had no weaknesses. 
He never felt things like we feel them. There was nothing that Jesus wouldn't do or couldn't do in their minds. But even the Son of God, when facing his darkest times, wanted to take friends with him. Can I tell you, as an application, some of you, and I, and I might say many of us, it's going to get pretty intense in your life this year. I'm no prophet, but I know humanity, and I know that we're all going to face it. Eventually, intense, difficult times are going to come. Whether it's the death of a loved one, whether it's the diagnosis of a doctor, whether it's fighting anxiety and depression and fear of the past or the present or the future, whether it's the constant bombardment of daily pressures, the uncertainty of what life will bring next. See, we can face it and we need to face it like Jesus on our knees. And we have a father. But can I say on a smaller level? We also have friends. And Jesus took Peter, James, and I, and certainly they needed him more than he needed them. But he took friends. Can I say this? In 2020, you need to be in a small group. You do. You need to be in a discipleship group. You know why? Because you shouldn't have to go through your Gethsemanes by yourself. We need each other. We need each other. We need to be together, pray together. Now listen, we stress family here. We're not perfect, and that's not an excuse. It's just reality. You know how we get better? We get better together. Not by pointing the finger at all the things the church or other individuals do wrong, but by saying, yeah, we do those things wrong. Now let me help be part of the solution. And you know how we do that? On our knees together in prayer. That's how we do it. That's how we face our Gethsemanes. We keep our focus on our Father. We look at Jesus as the model of prayer in the most difficult times. And then we say, please, come into my life. Here's, see, I'm not pretending to be something that I'm not, Jesus says. I'm a human, although perfect, obviously. But there were things that still bothered him, things that were tough for him, things that he struggled with. The Bible says that he struggled so much in verse 35 that going a little further, he fell on the ground. Don't miss that. The normal Jewish prayer position was to stand up with your eyes open and many times with your hands like this. That was the normal. For Jesus to be flat on his face on the ground was unusual. And the Bible says by the tenses of the verbs that he does this three times. Now he goes back because every time, in contrast to Jesus, he's so prayerful, his disciples are so prayerless. He's praying, they're sleeping. He is loyal to God. All of them become disloyal to God. And you're supposed to get the picture. <laughs> Prayer makes a difference. But the Bible indicates that every time he goes back, he says this, and he said the same words. Not because repetition is the key to getting God to hear you. No, because Jesus is struggling with the reality of this and making it his own. So it seems like every time he goes away from the little distance, that every time standing up, he falls on his face. Every time he gets up, checks them out, comes back, falls on his face because Gethsemane is knocking him down, but not out. This is the God, Jesus, who in John 18, a few minutes after this, 
is going to say to the soldiers, who are you seeking? And all the Roman soldiers, which would have been three or five hundred of them, by the way, not just a handful, Judas brought the whole thing. They've got torches, they've got swords, they have clubs. All these hundreds of soldiers, G- soldiers and Jesus with his word says this, and they, says they all fall to the ground. Same phrase. Now, it, this is amazing. The very God who can speak his word and soldiers fall to the ground himself is falling to the ground in prayer. You know why? Because the power to overcome your Gethsemane is not found because you have a sword in your hand, but because you have an Abba on the throne. That's the difference. Jesus knows the real power that's needed, and he wants to share it with you and I. So how does he face, how does Jesus face the overwhelming emotional, physical, spiritual barrage of everything that's going to be loaded on him? He prays. It's what he purposely does. How about you this year? Will it be where you turn first to your Abba? to your father, or we try to work it out in your own wisdom. We manipulate circumstances, call in the favor, money can buy you out. See, only Mark's gospel, only Mark's gospel records Jesus calling his father Abba. Because Jesus has Abba on the inside, he is able to cry Abba on the outside. Even in his darkest times, he can handle with God, his Father, anything on the outside because his Father is on the inside. And Jesus says, and if you are my son, so can you. And what would that look like if you did? If a son of God would follow the example of the son of God in prayer, what would it look like when you prayed? Well, it would look like this. Submission. The son of God prayed submissively. Jesus, with all of his heart, desires two things. That God in his power would take the cup away from him. And he talks about the fourth cup at the Lord's Supper, which was the cup of God's wrath. And Jesus was going to have to drink it. And he wants him to remove him from this hour. He doesn't want the hour that goes to the cross. And in his heart, that is something he would like to avoid. So he asks his father, his Abba, three times. In fact, Mark is big on threes. Three disciples with Jesus. Three times Jesus prays. Three denials by Peter. Three times he finds him sleeping. And it's very significant that Jesus prays three times because he is everything the disciples are not. So it behooves us without any uncertainty whatsoever to look at Jesus and say, what should I do as a son of God in my darkest times? Here's what it is. Ready? Submit. Not the word you were looking for, but it's the reality. And can I tell you, flat out, it won't be easy. It's a struggle to submit, isn't it? Even for the perfect son of God. And there's reasons why, in fact, probably numerous reasons why it's it's a struggle for us to submit. Jesus had to pray it three times. He had to go over and over it. The Apostle Paul prayed three times, take this thorn of the flesh away from me. But eventually he said, your will be done. My weakness is a platform for your strength, Paul said, and so it is with our Lord. And you know what the dissonance is? 
You know what's difficulty for Jesus? You know what intensifies his pain in Gethsemane? He tells us, listen, look at verse 36. Father, Abba, here's what I know you to be. All things are possible for you. You know what that means? You can do anything. This is not a lack of ability on your part. This isn't a lack of power. Jesus later will tell his disciples, especially when Peter pulls out the sword and tries to lop the guy's head off. Here's what he says. Do you not think that my, I could ask my father, my Abba, do you don't think I could pray to my Abba right the second and he would send 12 legions of angels? Oh, he could. 72,000 angels. That could do some pretty severe damage. He says, this isn't a lack of power on your part. I know it's not. It's not a lack of passion. Jesus never once doubts that the Father loves him, although the disciples did when they were on the ocean, I'm on the sea. That's not it at all. It's a matter of accepting God's purposes to be more important than anything else in his life. The reality that God is able but is choosing not to help him choosing not to remove the cup, choosing not to remove him from this hour, it's a struggle for Jesus. Is it for you? Have you ever prayed and wondered in your mind, God, I know you can do anything. God, I know nothing's impossible for you. God, I know you're omnipotent. I know you have power. Then here's what I ask. Restore my marriage. And he says, no. God, I know you have the ability to save my son or daughter today. And he says, no. God, you have the ability to meet all my financial needs. You can get me out of this mess I'm in. You can change my health issues that I fought chronically for so long. And he says, no. You can answer my prayer. I know you can. But he doesn't. Certainly not the time in the way that you want him to. So God the Father's answer is this. I can remove the cup from you. But Jesus, what does my word say about concerning your life? Because here's what the Father knew. Jesus knows exactly what his plans are. He knows what God's purposes are. He knows why he came to the earth, why he was born, why he preached, why he did all the things he did, and that why he was going to the cross. Jesus knows all these things. Here's what he has to do. It's not a matter of a lack of information or power or love on God's part. It is a matter of submission on Jesus's. Hebrews 5 says it this way. Jesus learned obedience by the things that he suffered. He did not go from disobedience to obedience he went from one level of obedience to another. And as he obeyed the will of the Father and kept doing exactly what the Father said to him in every circumstances, see, his obedience was growing to a greater level. His loyalty could not be shattered by any stretch. And so Jesus comes to the realization, and, and on his knees, by the way, in prayer, that God's purposes far outweigh my own. God's desires far outweigh my own. And says in verse 36, literally in the text, but not what I want. And both the phrases have the strongest adversative but in them to say that these things are completely opposite of one another. Not what I want, not what I request, God, not what I desire, but what you want. Isn't that the fight of prayer? Isn't that the struggle daily of our lives? 
to submit ourselves and everything in our lives to do what God wants instead of what we want. I call it a painful alignment. Every day you get on your knees and you painfully align what you want with what God wants. So maybe that means you will not get the promotion at that job because you're a Christian and what you stand for. And because you don't fall in line with what everybody else does, you're not going to get it. It may mean that you're not going to date that guy who you really like, think he's all that. He's not a believer. It's painful. It may be that you're not going to buy that car because in doing so, the payments and the money involved and the maintenance would mean it would be less in your ministry, less in your ability to give to God and to help other people, and you will have to say no. Maybe it means that the friends that you hang around are destroying your spiritual life and helping you do that yourself. And if you're going to follow God and you're going to have his purposes before yours, it may mean the end of those relationships. Too often, isn't it true? Too often prayer is not doing what God wants, but God using God to get what we want. He's like our four-leaf clover, our good luck charm, our rabbit's foot, a genie in the bottle. So when I pray, I'm rubbing the lamp. And say, God, here's my three wishes. Get on it. That's not relational. It's barely even religious. Tozer described it in one of his books as the utilitarian Christ. And by that he means that we just use God. And we think prayer is our methodology to get what we want. Where Tozer says it cheapens God. It lessens him. Jesus didn't desire to use his father. Jesus desired to be used by his father. Whatever that meant. So submissive prayers, 21st century style, might sound like this. Father, I don't want to be single for the rest of my life. I want to be married. But not what I want, but what you want. Father, I don't want... Father, I do want you to remove this cup of cancer from me. And I know that you can. But not what I want, but what you want. Father, I I want you to give my husband and I the ability to have children. The time is running out for us. And I know that you can do anything, but not as I want but as you want. Father, I want you to step in. Please do so. I've seen you do it for other people. You can turn this relationship around completely in a day. All you have to do is say the word. But not what I want, but as you want. James Deck wrote a song called Abba Father. The first verse goes like this. Abba Father, we approach thee in our Savior's precious name. We, thy children, have assembled. Now thy promised blessing claim. From our sins his blood has washed us. Tis through him our souls draw nigh. And thy spirit too hath taught us, Abba, Father, thus to cry. See, when you cry to God as your father, and you say Abba, it does not mean that he is a doting dad. 
who's ready to open his wallet and hand over the credit card for anything you're looking for. It means this, that you trust him as your father and know that his will is best to glorify him and for your good. And you are willing, as you cry, Abba, to submit to him in everything, no matter how much you may not understand or how much it may cost you. And can I tell you in closing, in complete contrast to Jesus' prayerfulness are the disciples' prayerlessness. Do you know Peter thought he was loyal? He thought he was strong. And he denied Jesus three times. Judas certainly thought it might be okay in his life, but it certainly was far from it. And where do you find the disciples? Peter denying, they all running. You know what the difference is? Jesus was praying and they were sleeping. And as it mentions Jesus praying three times, it mentions them sleeping three times. Because the idea is this. Can I tell you this? Submissiveness and prayerlessness go together. don't go together. You cannot be submissive unless you are prayerful. And if you are struggling with what God is saying no to, and what God wants you to surrender in your life to, what you're supposed to be submitting to, then probably you are not praying to him and certainly not praying what he wants, more like what you want. And that's why Jesus says, not just pray to them, he says twice, watch, watch. You know why? Because in your darkest hours, here where Satan wants to attack you, he wants to distract you, he wants to get you involved in all kinds of other things, and he wants to turn your heart away from him. Judas put his purposes before God and betrayed Jesus. Peter put his purposes and his way before Jesus, and he denied him. The Jews put their purposes before God and before Jesus, and they killed him. See, is that where you are? And if prayer is what you do in emergencies only or before a meal because you think it's some sort of holy obligation, you might find yourself in serious trouble. Here's what Jesus says. Abba, Father, it is a wonderful, supernatural privilege. But with it comes submission. God, you can do anything. Here's what I pray first that you would do. Make me submissive to everything you've asked me to do. Abba, Father. Father, so much a delight to say those words. But to whom much is given, much is required. And to given this wonderful status as being a son of God, by the son of God comes with it a weight of responsibility, just like it was for Jesus. May it be the prayer of every child of God in this room today, every heart, may our greatest passion be to submit to your will. It is a fight, it is a battle, and that battle can only be won on our knees. May we fight together, not against each other, together. Not our agendas, not our purposes, not what we think should be done, your purposes, above our purposes. May that be the kind of submission that rings true and characterizes our faith and fellowship at Faith Baptist Church, that together, as we stand together and as we kneel together, may we do your will, Master. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.